Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to this week's Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, there are many ways of getting our show. You can download directly from the website at techcentral.ie, use a smartphone podcast app, iTunes, or turn us on every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Joining me as always is Editor-in-Chief of Tech Central, Niall Kitson, and two big stories this week all to do with phones. Let's start off with Mobile World Congress. There must be three Three things that are grabbing our attention at Mobile World Congress, yeah? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we, we've got limited time this week, so we've got to plough through everything. So Mobile World Congress this year, I would file it under three distinct categories, right? So we had uh, 5G networks, until we're showing off a little bit about what you can do with 5G in particular, um, with things like the Internet of Things applications, so smart cities, that kind of thing, but also self-driving cars. And uh, delivering 8K content, 8K content, which is effectively twice the resolution of 4K, is what it says. And they're looking at that particularly in relation to VR applications. Okay, so we're not going to have a full 5G standard until roughly 2020, but it's the roadmap is there, and that's only three years away. So that's 5G. We're going to park that. Um, And also, here's here's kind of what we want to talk about, really, to get to the crux of things. Everything old is new again. You see, if you, to say. if you hang on to that phone long enough, <laughs> it, it will come back. It into will fashion. come back in time, and that's exactly what's happened with Nokia. This is what everybody has been talking about for the last week, which is the thirty-three ten has been kind of been just brought up to date just a little bit and relaunched. When can we get our hands on it? Is the big question. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I don't have a, a release date for, for over here at the moment, but it's kind of interesting to where these things came from, because do you remember your first mobile phone? I, I, I do, but I don't remember the brand or the type. I, I can picture it in, in my head. It was a big, ugly brick of a thing. Yeah, I, I had a Nokia. No, it was a Motorola A130. And it was, uh, people used to call it the ready-to-go phone. You remember when Aircell released their, their first ready-to-go? I had it before um, Pay-as-you-go was in, was... Uh, uh, introduced. That's how long ago I have it. And it was a phone that if you ran out of battery, you could use regular AA batteries in it. Oh my God, you are so showing your age. I know, that's pretty terrible, isn't it? <laughs> so that was the first phone I ever had. And the first Nokia phone I ever had was the 3210, which was sort of a slightly longer version of the 33. The 33 um, succeeded it. And uh, that was robbed on me one evening. I think I had it for like a week and it it was robbed on me. So I ended up with the 3310 and we were very happy together for a long time. Did you own a 3310? Uh, it was either, I think it was a 3310 or I think the 6110. Uh, and it was one of the best phones that I had. And I, I, what I liked about the Nokia that I had is that it was simple. It was back in the day, of course, you see, when you would use your phone to telephone people. <laughs> yeah. And maybe send some text messages because nobody knew what text messaging was at the time. And that I'm now I'm showing my age. It was kind of a bit <laughs> of a back channel for engineering. That was it. And people discover, oh, and it's free. And then all of a sudden the networks copped onto it and went, oh, hang on. Let's charge for this. Yeah. Um, uh, but that's that, that's what I use it for. And the battery would last forever. And I think that's the number one thing that everybody would say about the Nokia 3310. You could blow the thing up and it would still come back working. 
and that's such a novel thing by by today's standards you know you you expect almost to go out for the working day come home come home and mm. you know plug your phone in straight away in some cases you know it's it's just the idea of a battery that actually lasts a week is just completely alien to us now but aside from the fact that the battery works uh, so well do you think and everybody's kind of oh do you remember that and it was fantastic do you think it's actually going to sell in any great numbers now that we're so reliant on smartphones and internet connections well here's the thing if you're going to ditch your smartphone why not go back to something you're already familiar with or if you want to buy a phone for somebody that you know isn't interested in smartphones Mm -hmm. or maybe uh, an older person who just wants a very simple phone maybe something like that Uh, I mean bear in mind you know the 3310 the new version it's not even 3G it's still 2G it's not not LTE it's not anything this is something that's been designed for phones uh, calls text Mm. and uh, taking very basic photos and they barely updated the screen and it's still got snake the only thing that I am concerned concerned for them about it is that I think the pricing is wrong because uh, it's still going to cost the guts of 120 or 130 euro for uh, for the Nokia and mm-hmm. you can pick up a really basic smartphone for that these days so I don't I don't think I wouldn't be inclined to buy one if it was 50 quid bam ah oh yeah go on I'll take that it'll be a burner it'll be a spare phone or something yeah. like that just to have around but for 120 quid you kind of it's the psychology of it you know what I mean if it was 99 yeah. euro I'd think about it but it, because it's over 100 it's like eh and from a network perspective they're not going to be making any money from, from data off it so it's mm. not there's no great carrot for the networks to carry it um, but by the way side note it is uh, of course it's not being made by Microsoft who, who got out of um, not Nokia's uh, devices business completely and they it's licensed the Nokia brand and the IP and all that is licensed to a company called HMD Global which is a, a Finnish company composed of Nokia veterans so they're they're bringing it all back home so they are Excellent. So we are excited about it and we're looking forward to actually getting one in our hands. Whether we buy one or not, that's a whole other story. Uh, the other big one from Mobile World Congress, uh, Congress is another one that's coming back and that's BlackBerry. Yeah, BlackBerry. Um, again, this is a licensed product made by a Chinese company called TCL and the BlackBerry Key One. So it, it brings back that, that classic BlackBerry format of the, the physical keyboard. Uh, interesting to note, doesn't run on any of the BlackBerry operating systems. BlackBerry, of course, they're interested in enterprise software and messaging software now. Uh, so it runs on Android. Okay. So when is a BlackBerry not a BlackBerry? That, 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 I think that's going to die. <laughs> Probably, yes. (laughs) I was going to die. Now, listen, speaking of mobile phones and data and being hooked on the internet and stuff like that, the other really big story of the week is that from the 15th of June, you will be able to use your mobile phone anywhere in Europe, just like you do at home. They're calling it Rome Like Home. Exactly the same amount of money. You can just use your your, your data and your phones and your texts and everything exactly as if you were in Dublin or Kilkenny or Galway or Donegal or whatever it happens to be way for the EU or am I over optimistic uh, you are, but it's not as bad as you think it is once you do a bit of digging. OK, now the story appeared in The Independent basically saying that, uh, oh, my God, you know, when you start roaming from the 15th of June, your calls will be the same, your texts will be the same, your data mo- absolutely won't be the same. Okay, so you might remember this is all coming in as part of the EU digital single market. So you'd imagine that data would be a natural part of the um, phone package when Mm. you go abroad. That's not necessarily the case. 
So uh, what really brought this to light in uh, over the past week is three are changing the details of their contracts. So there's, if you're on a, a three contract, you're going to be paying a little extra per month. I think it's about five euro. And if you go abroad, you are going to have a data allowance. Right. So Air and Meteor um, already introduced um, this idea of the data allowance when you go abroad last year. Uh, it's about it's about one gig. Um, that's subject to change. Now, what's interesting about Air Meteor is that because they brought this in in um, mid 2016, they actually have a little bit of data on um, they can see what the usage patterns are. So they know what is roughly an acceptable amount of data people are using when they go abroad. So uh, as you know, three, one of their big things is, you know, unlimited data, unlimited data. And you know that's not really practical when you go abroad for a couple of reasons I'll, I'll go into. So this whole idea of actually putting a, a cap or, you know, a nominal um, limit on your data is kind of anathema to what three do. Vodafone came out and said, um, you know, your tariff is is effectively calls text data. It will be the same whether you travel abroad. Comreg came out and said, well, yes, they, they can all do this and we're going to keep an eye on the situation. But here's where the, the problem at the EU level came from. Right. In Ireland, we have three mobile networks that are capable of delivering a certain uh, quality of service. Right. Um, and it's for three million people. And of course, you know, when networks are set up a- across the continent, they're done so with the domestic populations in mind, not w- not with the potential for free movement of people with different tariffs, with different data allowances between each territory. Right. So I'm in Dublin. I'm on three. I've got unlimited data, inverted commas. I think it's 60 gigs is the, f- the fair use on it. Um, I travel down to the south of France uh, where they have different networks. I'm not picking on south of France. I'm just giving an example. Um, we'll say the infrastructure isn't as good, isn't as developed. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm starting to put pressure on other users, not me individually, but of course, the thousands, thousands of people that go down to, to other countries in Europe that travel and expect that um, no roaming, that everything will be the same. Yeah, so something has to be done. And it's it's not something, you know, terribly drastic if you're given notice about it. Um, as I say, our meteor sort of uh, tackled this last year. Comreg are having a look at it and um, saying, OK, we're going to keep an eye on what's going on. Vodafone said, look, you can use your, you can roam like home. We're, we're going to keep an eye on it. But for the moment, yep, that's exactly what you can do. So in theory, it affects three customers the most, which is where a lot of the, the ire is coming from. But... Um, as a as an important note, because three are changing their contracts, right? Because the costs are going up, because they're going to uh, introduce this um, potential. Uh, it's not a data cap, but you know what I mean. Uh, this, but they're changing the terms. From what I yeah. understand, is the way that uh, the EU have set it up is that if you have you've got unlimited calls, you've got unlimited text, and you've got sixty gigs worth of data at home, you should have all of that abroad. And what three have done uh, is they have said, okay, uh, you've got unlimited calls, you've got unlimited data, uh, and then you've got the basic. 5 gigs data, but as a service bonus, we'll give you another 55 gigs when you're in Ireland. Therefore, when you are travelling abroad, you actually only have 5 gigs. And I think that's what people are giving out about. And it's a bit of a sideways step around what the EU are trying to achieve. Uh, Yep, it certainly is. But for any three customers out there that are feeling particularly aggrieved by this, 
Mm. When those changes to the contract come in, you can actually move contract. You are not locked in the same way you were. You've got, you've got, I, I think, like a 30 day window to move contract with no, um, no penalties. Right. All right. Well, I can tell you, I'm, I'm a Vodafone customer and I got a note from them saying uh, that this summer, feel free to roam. You've got unlimited calls, unlimited texts, and uh, the data package that you have at home is the data package you have while you're abroad at the same time. Yeah. So you never know. There might be some sort of harmonized fair use um, idea comes out of it. As I say, mm. Aaron Michi are, ge- are getting the uh, the usage patterns. They're getting some insight into what's going on. So we, mm. we might see a little bit of fluctuation, hopefully, hopefully for the good. Hopefully it'll all work out. Yeah. Anybody who goes on holidays and watches YouTube videos while they're on the beach needs their head examined, not their contract with three renegotiated. (laughs) (laughs) Good man, Niall. Thanks for bringing us up to date on all. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. We've talked a bit on the show about artificial intelligence and how we will be using it in the future. And we're thinking, will AI platforms like IBM's Watson become our friends or will they just be another tool for solving very complex problems? And if we change the way that we interact with machines as we are at the moment, should there be rules for how machines interact with us? Some big questions. Well, to get the answers, Niall met up with Vice President and Chief Science Officer at IBM Research, Dr. Guru Banavar, to get to the bottom of these questions and more. I've managed to corner Dr. Guru Banavar, who is the Vice President and Chief Science Officer for Cognitive Computing at IBM Research. And we're going to talk a little bit about developments in AI and where AI kind of fits into into society in general, because um, Guru, just to start, when we look at AI, the popular perception is, you know, the ex machina, it's it's the terminator, it's the the replication of, of human intelligence or uh, artificial general intelligence. Um, your view of it is very different. It's it's much more of a, an AI as the ultimate sidekick, if you will. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's actually very practical and useful to view these AI machines as some something that can complement us as people and augment us in places where we are not so good. You know, people, all of us are very, very good at certain things like social interactions and value judgments and things like that. But machines are great at other things um, like very large-scale statistical analysis or pattern recognition and, you know, things like reasoning for hundreds of steps and so forth. So when we as people come across problems where we need to do some of those kinds of tasks that machines are very good at, why not use them as, as an extension of our brain, so to speak, which is a, an augmented intelligence thought as opposed to an artificial intelligence, which is more of the replication of exactly what our brains do. And the, the, the other point I want to also emphasize is that we don't really understand what the human brain does. Even neuroscience is still very, very early. Um, and there's many aspects of not just the algorithms that happen in the brain, but also all the cognitive science processes um, that, um, that people observe in behaviors of various people. So, I, you know, I strongly believe that this notion of just replicating the brain is not the right approach. I think the right approach is really to augment people and do things that um, that can make a difference in today's um, healthcare and financial services, education, all of the big problems that we worry about and that we somehow can't solve on our own. 
And when we look at those big areas, as you mentioned, like education, like healthcare, like finance, and, and also business decision making, where you know an awful lot of decisions are made on the fly, where you know with the best will in the world, person only has so much information to hand. Having a resource like Watson, you know, backing up their decisions is, is certainly incredibly valuable. Um, what kind of applications are we being seen are being seen across the board? Because I imagine it's it's slightly more inventive than you know consulting it in the same way you might a calculator. Yes. Um, so one of the approaches we've taken in the Watson um, group in uh, IBM is to make available some core AI capabilities as APIs or components on the platform that uh, people can build their own applications. So we literally have tens of thousands of application developers building all kinds of applications in every possible industry you can imagine. So there are some applications that build, um, you know, essentially bots um, that help people do things like shopping or, you know, find uh, good answers for, you know, how to manage your, um, you know, nutrition, right? Uh, what wine to drink and what food to eat and those kinds of things. And some of the other more sophisticated applications are to help people manage their, possibly their chronic diseases like uh, diabetes, right? If you're diabetic and if you want to be constantly aware of, you know, how your blood sugar level is uh, and you, if you carry around uh, devices that help you manage that with like an insulin pump or something like that, it may be very important for you to see predictively, right, what's likely to happen if you eat something or if you sleep, you know, without drinking water or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and we built applications, or actually Medtronic in this case has built an application called Sugar IQ, where um, the machines, the sensors send data back to the cloud and that's available to a mobile application which can give you some predictive you know, uh, insight into whether you're going to cross any thresholds and whether the insulin pump should be turned on or off and things like that. So those are more kind of uh, chronic disease management type applications. I'll mention one more, which is um, probably uh, relevant to most people who earn any money at all, which is income tax, right? So how would you uh, use uh, a machine like Watson to help prepare your tax returns, um, and now we have H&R Block, which has built an application to to do that in a much more effective way. And, and you know, I, I could go on and on with applications in education and transportation and you know, travel uh, areas and uh, some other areas that I would consider to be even, even more expertise-oriented, like drug discovery and things like that. Uh, but it's literally every industry that you can imagine. There are AI applications now that are that are built on top of the Watson platform, and it's becoming more and more used. And in terms of how people are interacting with the platform, I mean, we've touched upon you know the desktop, uh, which isn't going anywhere. We've we've touched upon apps, but I think more and more we're going to see bots become the primary user interface for people. Um, what kind of developments are we are we seeing here? Because I I know that when you're dealing with a bot, a person immediately project a personality onto them, but that brings with it an entirely different set of problems as well. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I think uh, bots are a much more natural way for people to interact because you can, you know, you can ask a question like you would ask a friend or a colleague or something, and uh, hopefully you'll get some good answers. But at the same time, there are issues of, uh, the way I think about it is there are issues of trust. Uh, so how do I really know 
that what I'm getting back is a good answer, or, you know, uh, how accurate it really is it, how confident is a bot in giving me uh, an answer, especially when, it, when it's something critical which may impact you from a health or a, you know, or a money point of view, right? Um, so, the, you know, one of the key ways in which uh, bots can become more trustworthy is to be able to explain why they're doing things. So if, uh, say, you, 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 you ask the question of, you know, uh, what, what should I eat for dinner tonight? Um, and the bot comes back and says, listen, um, I would love for you to get a little more protein today and maybe a little bit of vitamin B or something like this. So try the following three, you know, dishes today or something. And then you say, why do you think that's, uh, that's what I should eat tonight? And it says, listen, you know, I've seen, um, I've seen in your past uh, few um, medical, you know, tests or your, your, your past few meals, your vitamin B has gone down and your, um, you know, certain proteins in your body have, have also, um, have also seemed to be, uh, uh, gone down. Um, maybe you want to, you want to shore that up a little bit and, and here are great places that you can go and get some, you know, get some of, some of your favorite proteins, right. Or, or vitamins, right. So those kinds of explanations, I, I'm just giving a simple example here, but you can, you can think about how the same things would apply for a, fairly sophisticated decision that a, um, you know, uh, a radiologist might do, or might make, or a tax consultant might make, and so forth. So only in those um, easy-to-understand explanatory systems will people feel that they're getting what they want from machines. And I think that kind of works um, almost uh, to, uh, to almost call it an error um, in that machines won't be able to deliver. Well, at the moment, they're not capable of understanding things like sarcasm or humor, um, which means they wouldn't get on particularly well in Ireland. Um, but uh, there was a case that you mentioned of um, a school in America that was trialing a bot as a, a TA. So t- tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so in this particular instance, uh, a professor at uh, Georgia Tech, whose name is Ashok Goel, used a bot as one of six uh, t- uh, TAs, so teaching assistants, in a um, computational creativity class, which is an AI class for certain kinds of applications of uh, AI. And um, what he tried over a, the course of a semester is to you know, not tell students uh, about his TAs at all. And at the very end of the semester, he told them that you know, one of the TAs, the six TAs that they were all writing emails to, uh, was actually a machine, a bot, uh, was answering questions about uh, a variety of topics, you know, which is procedural things like, you know, when is this assignment due or, you know, why did I not get this this grade uh, even though I answered that question, et cetera, right? So those are, those are kinds of procedural things. But uh, it was also beginning to touch on more conceptual things like, you know, what is the definition of this or that uh, kinds of things. So uh, what was interesting about that, of course, was... Um, you know the the social experiment, where he didn't tell them at all that this was a this was a bot, uh, and they didn't suspect it until you know he told them, uh, which was great. Uh, but at the same time, I think in order to truly make a difference in education, it's not enough if you just handle procedural questions. I think what you really would like in the end is to have the help of a bot to personalize education. 
So you need to understand where an individual student is today and what is the next few things to teach them in the sort of zone of proximal learning, which is, you know, just enough to pique their interest and, you know, but not so much that it will overwhelm them. Um, so figuring out how to do that is a more complicated problem. But I think we will have bots who can do that, which can do that as well in the not-so-distant future. Um, I think uh, one of the important uh, areas that you, you touch on in your work is almost sort of heading off the problem of bots down the line is sort of coming up with uh, sort of best practices and exploring the ethical space involved in AI. So where are we in that space at the moment? How far advanced is the debate? Because I know in the EU they're talking about electronic personhood and the debate is that, you know, we're, we really don't need to deal with this for another 10 years. What do you feel your own timeline is on this? Mm-hmm. A very good question and there are some really difficult Uh, issues here that needs to be addressed, okay? So uh, I think the most important debate that we need to have is to figure out which aspects of AI need to be addressed first uh, that have an impact on on social, you know, and ethical types of uh, considerations. So, for example, um, you know, this, this notion of electronic personhood maybe, you know, quite a bit further out, but there are certain issues that are impacting people today. Uh, for example, bias in algorithms that are making decisions for uh, determining whether you should get uh, a loan or not, uh, or a mortgage for your house, right? And that may be an algorithm that looks at many different factors and tries to model your you know, risk level and so forth and tries to say, okay, you know what, this person doesn't get a, a, a loan. So those kinds of areas, I think, are already, by the way, mortgage banking is already highly regulated. And I think using um, algorithms that come from the AI world will require the, uh, the entire regulatory mechanism in, in that banking and loan industry to be looked at carefully. And that's a present uh, issue that we need, we, need to, we need to worry about. Now, there are some other areas, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, that you know, regulation may be too early uh, and may be ill-defined. Um, so I've heard about um, you know, the regulations in, uh, in the EU about uh, explainability, right? Uh, I think there's, it's the, it's the right, for, right for explanation or something like this. Yes, you can have a regulation in that space, but guess what? Most AI systems can't even do it yet. So how are people going to innovate in, in this space? So I feel it's one of those areas where we've moved too fast to regulate, and therefore it may stifle um, you know, some of the new techniques that people are building and, and all the exploration and innovation that's going on and so forth. So uh, I think we have to, again, going back to my original point, we need to look at the whole spectrum of technologies. And I think we need to have a discussion and an education about where do we need to focus our ethics and regulatory discussions, um, and where is the technology mature enough that if you had some kind of regulation that the technology can actually support it? So those are the discussions I would like to see. Uh, And I suppose to look towards the future then, when we have sort of a greater availability of Watson-style AI, 
what will society start to look like? I mean, we're, we're expecting the fourth industrial revolution and this wave of automation that will render everyone unemployed and unemployable. So what is society going to look like? We're not all going to turn into mechanics looking after data centers. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I actually think that uh, jobs uh, going away is not is the right way. I don't think that's the right way to look at it at all. I think we need to think about skills required for various kinds of tasks. Because what's going to happen is jobs are going to be redefined. Um, there are certain things that uh, we will need to uh, learn as, as, as you know, employees of various, various industries. And there are certain things that we need to accept that machines will be a lot better um, than us in doing those tasks. So I would say we need to, again, go back to skills-based training and, 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 and re- um, uh, factoring our, our occupations so that you know these machine-oriented tasks can be um, can be done by AI-based systems and uh, the places where people are the best are done by people. So people have to learn new ta- new skills, and I think they will continue to have very high-value jobs, in my opinion, in, in almost every industry. And uh, there's still no substitute for basic common sense. You said it really well, because uh, AI systems have been trying to build common sense into machines for decades now, and you know we don't even know how to measure whether we have succeeded or not. So I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Dr. Guru Banavar, Vice President and Chief Science Officer at IBM Research. Just before we head off for this week, Niall, uh, what's our one more thing, the one little thing we couldn't talk about on the podcast that's on the website this week? Yeah, well, we've got a very interesting story this week about smart teddy bears that aren't so smart and have actually been involved in a pretty serious data breach you'll want to know about. Not so smart data breaching teddy bears. Get it all at techcentral.ie along with all the latest tech news, hourly updates, daily newsletters and more. Of course, as well, along with our weekly tech radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. On to next week for myself, Dusty Rhodes, that's from Niall Kitson. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.